several plants so far. And uh, anytime someone tells you you're going to get something good in 10 years, you should wonder why it takes 10 years. If you notice, there's no talk about the fact that the plant in 10 years will cost $3 trillion. You will lose your employer-based insurance. And in fact, you know, this is the single most important issue facing the public. And to be very blunt and to be very straightforward, you can't beat President Trump with double talk on this plan. So that he was one on, of his finer moments. Oh, yeah, and he went on to yell about, because uh, Kamala and Cory Booker were talking about, but they'll eliminate the deductibles. And he said, the deductible will be in your paycheck with a three, whatever it was, trillion dollar tax deal, or whatever with the numbers. Right. Um, he said, the deductible will be in your paycheck. It'll be coming out of your paycheck. That's where your deductible would be. Your taxes are going to be so high. And I thought, that's... That's going to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, he kind of stumbled and fumbled over that, which was too bad because I thought it was a, a, a good moment for him. But, but he's definitely on the right side of, I think, most people, most Democrats, let alone most of the country. So listen, I, I want to talk health care jabbering in the debate with Craig Gottwalz. Craig, the health care guru, an attorney at law and benefit consultant. Um, I want to get to that, but I do not want to bury the lead. I want to talk about the policy uh, announced by, or it's being uh, pursued by the Trump administration that came out yesterday, I guess, because there are two things that I, as a non-expert, think are seriously wrong with American health care. Number one, there's a lack of transparency. Nobody knows how nobody has any idea how much anything costs. And number two, there's so many people between the consumer and the provider, the buyer and the seller. And Craig Gottwalls joins us now. Craig, how are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Terrific. Thank you. So uh, Optimistic about the future of our fine land. That's how I am. What are you running for? So anyway. <laughs> you lie, Jack. You're high. You, you lie. lie. You lie. Uh, so, Craig, what was the announcement? What's, what's going on? So uh, back in the middle of March, uh, we did an extra large podcast, you guys and I, and we talked about the fact that the Trump administration through HHS and uh, the secretary of HHS, Alex Azar, had put forth many hundreds of pages of convoluted regulations on IT security around healthcare, And in the middle of that publication, they talked about how, hey, we're really thinking about forcing hospitals to disclose the actual prices that they pay when they do these services upon you, that they are paid by the insurance companies. And that caused a massive stir in the industry. It was the first time since we've had a healthcare crisis, that we've had an administration even wade into those waters. So if I want to know what my MRI is going to cost in advance, I can find that out, and I can find out what the hospital charges an insurance company? That was what was proposed back in May. And uh, at the end of May, that comment period closed. There were 2,000 comments sent into HHS, overwhelmingly the majority of them positive on this front. And just this week, through CMS, again, don't get too confused on the, on, the, on the mechanics of this, but the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which is probably a better place to do this regulation, frankly, because they work directly with all the hospitals, and the hospitals kind of have to comply with them if they want to mm-hmm. get reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid. So officially made this policy this week, put it in a proposed regulation that and spelled out exactly that not only will you have the right to know what that MRI costs, but you'll have the right to know what each insurance company would pay for that MRI and what each hospital would receive for that MRI within your city in a searchable online format. Oh, 
Wow. So I, I assume you believe... Competition. Yeah, I assume you believe this will help bring prices down. Yeah, there's still a ways to go. This is a proposed regulation. Now they have until September 27th to receive comments. But I do think this regulation is ultimately going to pass. And if it does, then there will be challenges in the courts from hospitals and insurance companies who hate this idea. But absolutely, more information, competition. This is the Amazonification of healthcare pricing. If you oh, wow. Good term. Boy, this is also an absolute head spinner for people who believe in less government uh, involvement in um, private business just because the regulation says, yeah, you reached a confidential contract with another, uh, you know, sovereign citizen or a corporation or whatever, but now you have to tell us what's in that contract. I will tell you this, uh, and, and this is frequently the answer when some of my libertarian impulses bump up against the screwing a lot of American people are taking. It's that the government and the cronies are so in this together, they have written all the rules and regulations thus far to protect each other. So I just see this as a little bit of transparency. Now, I haven't seen this news anywhere. If you hadn't brought it to my attention, I'd be completely unaware of it. Now, part of that is because when there's a debate going on, cable news has one topic. But we were just mocking Forbes a little bit ago for their stupid lists. (laughs) But Forbes had the headline, Trump and the Senate make significant progress on hospital price transparency. I hope that headline shows up more places. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, far be it from me to defend Forbes across the board, but the author of this particular piece, Avic Roy, is uh, he's one of the top five healthcare minds in the country. So this is not, you know, this is not coming from their uh, their clickbait list department. Right, well, and, and during these times of fevered partisanship, and we're in an election cycle, which now describes all the time, uh, the, the mainstream media is not going to give any credit to the Trump administration until it becomes absolutely unavoidable. Uh, so, no, and this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem for them too, Joe, because not only not only is this moving through CMS and HHS and likely to become a regula- regulation this fall, but in addition to that, it passed a Senate committee. So this is going to go to the full Senate, where it's also likely to pass. And then the House is going to have to decide this fall: Do we want to do something that we've said we want to do all of our careers as Democrats, or are we going to fight this just on the basis of politics? Oh, wow. What would, what would you guess? Uh-huh. Uh, Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, is on the line. Uh, this this could be a step forward. Hey, Craig, just give us like 30 seconds, if you can, on the other uh, issue that's just killing Americans financially in terms of health care, and that's um, uh, pharmaceutical prices. Uh, I've heard something about soon we'll be able to, to buy Canadian pharmaceuticals for a fa- fraction of the price. What's happening? Yes, we're also in the early stages on that, but that's HHS and Alex Azar, who's come out with a proposed idea saying, look, we're going to be able to have patients buy at least some pharmaceuticals from Canada. Now, again, the big headline here is for the first time since we've had a healthcare crisis and pricing on health insurance, we have an administration who's willing to go there. And who doesn't give a damn about the lobbyists. That's right, because again, this ticks off big pharma, big uh, hospitals, and big insurance. And they're willing to go there. Now, Canada has come out and said, geez, we don't know if we can support that kind of volume. And some people have come out and said, oh, that might not be safe, which you guys know is a a crock. But uh, again, big deal, big deal. 
Interesting. Well, Canada, come on, mount your moose and, and throw on your, your, your Mountie hat and, and get to work cranking out drugs. Well, since we got you on the line, yeah. we got to get a minute or so the last couple of nights of uh, health care talk <laughs> since it dominated the debate. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? How many heavy objects have you thrown at your television? <laughs> yeah, as you guys know, how many how many glasses of whiskey during the debates? And I'm granting <laughs> it you two. Um, so, look, they're all lying to you. Yeah, you know what? Um, Delaney and uh, Bennett are the closest to the truth on what's going on, if, you, if you've watched these debates. And they're saying, look, guys, this is insane. We can't just go straight to single payer. Nobody wants that. We'll bankrupt the system, et cetera. Now, with that said, though, they're all lying to you because there's three there's three categories here, right? There's there's the Biden category that says, hey, let's keep Obamacare and bolster it. There's the uh, Sanders uh, category that says, let's just go straight to Medicare for all. And then there's kind of the, the, the more slow Obamacare strategy by Bennett and uh, Delaney that says, let's just put the brakes on everything, guys. This is insane. But they're all lying to you because every single one of their proposals ends up in socialized medicine, and it does not end up in Medicare for all. It ends up in Medicaid for all. And But they never want to say that to you. Why? Because Medicaid is more affordable. It's what we could actually probably get to if the socialists have their way. And it's horrific. It means less doctors. It means less hospitals. It means lower payments. It means a brain drain out of that world. And we're going to be in something that looks closer to the looks something more like the VA than Medicare. The reason we can't afford Medicare is it's expensive. We use it for oldsters. People pay into it all their lives. We don't have the budget to do Medicare for all. Hey, this ends up in Medicaid for all. And one more thing. You've talked about this on the show before. We should mention it again because it comes up over and over again in these debates. The idea of health care being a right. What's the problem with health care being a right? Oh, yeah. Health care is not a right. You cannot have a quote right that is something that compels a doctor another human being to do work on you for a price you state and that's what medicare and medicaid do they say this is the reimbursement now it's currently a privilege because the the, the, the exchange now is here's what we'll pay for it do you take it or leave it once you make this a quote right how do you compel healthcare providers to do services upon you for a price dictated by the government that they have no control over. That's not a right. Is there yeah. another right? And not not the stupid, you know, modern idea of I have a right to this or that. I mean, an actual human right that requires another human being to do something. Can you think of one? I mean, no, other than just refraining, I have to refrain from harming you, from stealing from you, etc. I can't no, force not, you to quarter can... troops. No, yeah. you have to. Per- somebody else has to perform an affirmative action. Otherwise, my rights have been denied. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. That's that's an interesting point. Now, listen, and this matters because those who would change societies, to my mind, for the worse, they change language. And Orwell, of course, was was the super genius who spelled this out most effectively in the 20th century. But if you want to say health care is a good which should be denied to no one, that is a reasonable political stance. And I'm willing to discuss it. Um, but to call it a right, as you say, is is turning the idea of a right on its head. Uh, Craig Gottwalsh, Craig, the healthcare guru on the line. Craig, really good stuff. Do us a favor, um, as nobody's paying attention to these fundamental changes um, to the healthcare system that are angering the giant corporate lobbyists, um, as they move through the system, let us know about it, all right? 
We will. We will. Absolutely. All right, cool. Good to yeah, talk to you, Greg. Thanks a million. If you need help with benefits and how they intersect with your workforce and, and whatever, uh, Craig's available at benefit-revolution.com uh, on Twitter at Revolution or just email us mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. We'll put you in, in touch. A little more debate analysis on the way. Actually, great debate analysis later in the hour with Lon He Chen, who we really, really like. But who said the most words and the fewest words and who mentioned Trump the most and least is always kind of an interesting thing to look at, among other things on the way on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Well, I'm running down the road trying to loosen my load. I've got seven women on. I got some stats for you. Who said the most words? Who mentioned Trump the most? That sort of stuff from the debate last night. Oh, that's always fun. I'm always surprised at the most words stuff. A couple of political things that are happening right now that aren't debate-wise. Something AOC said, something Trump said. Worth noting. Oh, I haven't heard about old AOC for a couple of days. It's you're, odd. You're about There's to. There's been a drought. You're about to. Oh, goody. But first. She had some real tries. Oh, yeah, she, she got him. Oh, man. She got him. Oh, she got him. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. Um, uh, do we do it again day two? Late night joke off? Which oh, is generally what? a let night, a letdown. <laughs> oh, uh, if it were only a letdown, it would be all right. <laughs> it's usually a punch to the solar plexus of my soul. So here are a handful of the late-night hosts. Who is advising you? Yeah, Jack. <laughs> well, I will, in usual A&G fashion, uh, grade each of the jokes, and whoever is the worst will be banned from comedy for life. Fantastic. After two days and six hours, this round of debates is finally done. It was actually a nice change of pace. Usually when people watch six hours of CNN, it means their flight was canceled. <laughs> The second of two debates this week on CNN. The lineup tonight was Biden, Harris, Booker, Castro, Yang, Gabbard, Maynard, and Hartley. And the last two names I made up, but did you notice? No, no. just barely. This evening, of course, was the second straight night of Democratic debates on CNN. There were 10 more candidates tonight, including current frontrunner Joe Biden. A second debate. Yeah, it was a real relief for anyone who watched two hours and 45 minutes of arguing last night <laughs> and just thought, it's a shame we can't do this every night. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, the grades are in. Fallon with a D+. Plus. I like the shot at CNN, though. Kip. Appreciate that. That it's only on uh, in airports? Yeah. You know what? You're right. There is an appeal system. <laughs> C. <laughs> Well, hey. I didn't realize there was an appeal system. That's from failing to pass it. Congratulations. <laughs> Kimmel with a C. Somewhat amusing, I guess. Corden with a very strong B+. Plus. Now, keep in mind, he has deducted a full letter grade for oh. being a foreigner Give and taking comedy jobs Americans yeah. could do. Go back to where you came from, Corden. But that still puts him at a C+, plus, making him the winner. Mm. Fallon and Kimmel, we'll let him hang around for a while. But we're watching you. So this is kind of interesting. Looking at the words spoken broken down over two nights of the debates, it was much more even on night one. Maybe it's because he didn't have the front runner on the stage. I don't know, but it was more even. Elizabeth Warren said the most words. I I think the people highest in the polls should be saying the most words. That makes sense to me. But You're playing favorites. But night one, Elizabeth Warren said 2,800 words. Night two, Joe Biden said 3,800 words. He got 1,000 more words in. He did? Yeah. 
I'll be darned. And uh, so, yeah, that's the way that breaks down. The or least. He, he's pretty good at talking fast. He, you know, I'm a slow talker, so you know, I admire that. Frequently, his mouth though outstrips his ability to fill his mouth with ideas. At this point in his life, he was also Malarkey. He was also getting attacked Malarkey. from all sides. True so enough, he was so having he, got, to, he, he had to defend himself he got more the than anybody from the to first defend time. and respond. Right, John, according to Jake Tapper's. Iron-handedly <laughs> enforced debate rules. You feel respond now. They still don't need the twenty-five minute pregame with the national anthem. They don't need that. friggin' Don Lemon. Just start the thing. Uh, John Hickenlooper said the fewest words at only fifteen hundred. He watches porn with his mom. Oh, Andrew oh, oh. Andrew Yang said the fewest words last and night, and that's a tragedy. You know, the more I hear him, the more I like him. Yeah. Opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. <laughs> it's a pretty funny line. Woo! Crowd goes wild. <laughs> Kind of got um, screwed with the mic feedback right there on his uh, yeah, on his landing point. Yeah, though. that happens to Asians. I don't know why would I say that. Wow, I mean, that, I, this, I think that was reverse discrimination. Well, it wasn't or, uh, anything. It was just supposed to sound like discrimination, but it's nothing. It, it, so much it's, like uh, who is advising you? Yeah, <laughs> much like Fallon and Kimmel, it had the form of a joke, <laughs> right? But wasn't the least bit funny. Uh, Elizabeth Warren mentioned Trump the most, which is a smart thing to do it twelve times. Followed by Bennett, Booker, Gillibrand, Bullock, all my ten times. Bennett last night is getting some good marks. Yeah. A lot of people talking about he did well. Marshall's got his news on the way. Uh, give me one word, Marshall. Kamala Harris. Oh, there Two you words. go. That's one eh, name. Honorary one word. It'll it'll do. And Lon He Chen, who we love as an analyst coming up. The Washington Post called Donald Trump the winner of last night's debate. And we'll get back into debate talk here in just a minute. But a couple of political stories that get squeezed out a day after a big debate. The Hill has this story. AOC says marginalized communities have no choice but to riot. Yipes. Wow. I'd like to hear that in context, but right. the Hill is not really known for right. you know taking things out of context on purpose to fan oh. the flames. Oh, no, and they are not a right-wing publication. No, so I'll have to dig into that. Also, Donald J. Trump tweeted this a little bit ago. The budget deal is phenomenal for our great military, our vets, and our jobs. Two-year deal gets us past the election. Go for it, Republicans. There's always plenty of time to cut. Yes, and that, yeah, and that time never when? comes. Time. <laughs> yeah. It's always, and it's been this way as long as I've been paying attention, it's always after the next election. Oh, and hey, speaking Just of... one more election, right, and then and we'll, we'll do it. Uh, we'll make the tough choices. Uh, speaking of non-debate news, Jack, I personally would be gratified if you could reset at some point uh, billionaire, financier, and child molester Jeffrey Epstein's plan <laughs> to build a super race with his semen. Um, if you haven't heard this stuff, it makes the whole rapey island thing seem normal. Yeah, he's a kook. News now with Marshall Phillips. Well, Joe Biden once again found himself under fire in the second night of the second Democratic presidential debates last night. Even more so than he was during the first debate last month. But this time, the former vice president, everybody agrees, was a bit more animated and ready with attacks of his own to volley back with. I thought Democrats were against elder abuse. Boy, did he come in for a kicking. Hey, but a lot, But a lot of observers thought the biggest punch of the night wasn't landed against Biden, but against Kamala Harris. When little-known Representative Tulsi Gabbard slammed... She's known by heterosexual males, but go on. Slammed the former California District Attorney's record as a prosecutor. 
She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Now, Kamala Harris responded. She was saying she was doing her job and she was proud of the job she did. After the whole debate wrapped up, though, Kamala was asked about Tulsi's attack. Well, I mean, listen, I... This is going to sound immodest, but I'm obviously a top-tier candidate, and so I did expect that I would be on the stage and take hits tonight because there are a lot of people that are trying to make the stage for the next debate. Yeah, it's do, the, for a lot of them, it's do or die. Well, yeah, and especially when people are at zero or one percent or whatever she might be at, and so I did expect that I might take hits tonight. Me, ow. There you go. Yeah, I I want to ask Lonnie Chen about this. Just the strategy. So people that would take on uh, a De Blasio. Why would you waste any of your breath on Is that? It just to get coverage by being mean, or, or or just state your position so people hear, oh, you're for this. Because there's no advantage to taking on a one percent or zero percent candidate. Right. You don't need to climb over them. Right. They're not going to be the nominee. So I don't know what the strategy is there. Well, and you're also bringing them down a notch, but there's no guarantee that you will then be the one who vaults past them. Yeah. Uh, So the Washington Post said Trump was the winner last night and had this headline. Facing Trump, Democrats turn on another president, Obama. The headline really is that they spent half or more of the debate beating up Obama-era policies and blaming Joe Biden for him, with Barack Obama having a 97% approval rating among Democrats, right? and Obamacare having about an 85% approval rating. The Obama era, which was 1963 through 71... No, it was two years ago! (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we had Daniel Milbank on yesterday from the Washington Post, but his headline today was, Joe Biden was brilliantly and gloriously adequate. (laughs) He made he he, yeah. he might have helped people who were a little scared. Oh, I don't know if he can do this or not. Maybe he did helped himself there. Low bar. Meanwhile, President Trump is going to be in Ohio for a campaign rally tonight. This should be interesting. Always is. Follow up to the debate and other things. Uh, here, here's the key. I hope he's not overly critical. Does the crowd well, start chanting "Send her back" when he talks about the squad or send yeah. them back? Does he allow it? Does he step back? Does he encourage it? Does he start it? Who knows? Does he move on from that? Does he have a new riff? I don't know. The state of Arizona has filed a lawsuit directly with the Supreme Court claiming that the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma made billions of dollars from the company that makes oxycotin and should pay that money back. Hmm. Their state's attorney general wants the Supreme Court to make sure the people responsible for the opioid epidemic are held accountable He says he knows that the high court rarely hears cases until after they've been heard by the lower courts. But he says that the opioid crisis warrants the unusual move, saying it's a little different. It's a little unorthodox. Sometimes you just have to throw deep. So he's trying to see if the court, the high court will hear the case. If I'm uh, editing the Arizona Republic, my headline is kicking the Sackler. Uh, Just back to you. Kicking the Sackler. Kicking the Sackler family. A consumer advocate has a warning for all of us. Says drivers are at risk because of the new computers that he believes can be hacked. Jamie Court with Santa Monica-based Consumer Watchdog Agency 
worries that it could lead to an attack on the level of 9-11. How so? Well, court insists thousands of people might die if hackers are able to gain control of their vehicle systems. He's pointing to the fact that millions of Internet-connected cars are hitting the market. It's interesting, the idea of so the old uh, the, the murder mysteries, you know, back in the day on right. TV, you know, the, the, the angry the husband being yeah, cut. cuts yeah. the brake line on his right. wife's car. Right. And the, the, so now it would just be hacked into the computer, yep. set it up and drive into a tree. doable? I don't know. Does that exist? Is this guy just looking for publicity? It's. I don't know why it couldn't. It's doable. There have been demonstrations. Right. Um, now, these are generally not cars that are already available for public consumption. They're kind of, you think of your concept cars at your right. auto shows, things right. that are, they're, they're right. messing around with that, this technology. But there have been demonstrations of somebody standing off the side with a laptop. You're like, okay, now your hazards are on. All right, right. now you're accelerating. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I don't yeah. have any idea what I'm talking about, but I guarantee it's doable. I mean, oh, yeah. if yeah. it's a computer hooked up to the internet and it's going to be a self driving car, obviously somebody could hack it and make it do oh, whatever sure. the hell it Those cars, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, these just, are cars These are cars that are in the works and they're going to be well, hitting right. the market so, really soon. You know, if they can hack in and change the radio station, I mean, eh, change it to the Armstrong and Getty show. But can they actually brake and accelerate and stuff like that? I don't know. Or we'll just make your out. car turn really sharp this way all the time. Sudden. Oh, that'd right. be huge. Anyway, that's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. Lonnie Chen is not some cable news talking head dope. He's prepped major candidates for debates. He's watched the polls afterwards. He knows how this stuff actually works, and he's been checking out the uh, Democratic debates. Can't wait to talk to Lonnie Chen next. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Look, I think the good news for Joe Biden is this was maybe the best he could do. Uh, and the bad news is this may be the best he could do. <laughs> That's David Axelrod. Who... Malarkey. <laughs> Malarkey. <laughs> David Axelrod ran Obama's campaign. Uh, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe had this to say. Give me a break. What's wrong with you people? I don't understand. You're going up against Donald Trump? And you're talking about defending Obamacare as Republican yes. talking points? Who is advising you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> a lot of beating up on uh, Obama-era policies on the debate stage last night. Well, they're going after that 3% of Democrats that didn't like Barack Obama. Exactly. Finally, they get the pummeling they deserve. Lon He Chen joins us. Lon He is a David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Director of Domestic Policy Studies. And lecturer in public policy at Stanford University, Lon He. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine. Nothing like two nights of debates to get you going in the morning. Oh, so I tell you what, I feel re-energized and just more in love with life than ever. <laughs> um, so, uh, what stood out most to you? What's what's on the tip of your tongue this morning, debate wise? Well, I, I think it's interesting. You know, the candidates had two nights to present. You know, what I would say is a vision for how they plan to govern, how they plan to maybe even defeat Donald Trump. And instead, especially last night, they really spent their time attacking one another. I thought last night was really interesting because everyone's coming after Joe Biden, then Kamala Harris gets attacked, and then kind of inexplicably Joe Biden attacks Cory Booker. And it was just a very bizarre confluence of events. When, when I thought it was going to be a much more substantive conversation, I, I really thought it was a lot more of a scrum 
And I don't know that's going to serve the Democrats well in the long run. So I thought it was a little puzzling from that perspective. Well, do you, do you blame the candidates? Or a lot of people are blaming CNN. They're, they're taking a beating uh, from MSNBC and the Washington Post has a whole column about that. What, what's with this pitting each, uh, them against each other? Every question is set up a, she said something bad about you, you said something bad about her, now yeah. you argue. I mean, what, what is that? Well, here's my thing. The first rule in politics is you don't answer the question. Gotcha. Right? So you don't have to take the bait. I mean, why these guys take the bait, and it's like, oh, well, Joe Biden said this about you. Well, great, I'm going to attack Joe Biden. The reality is that the person who I thought had the most to lose last night was Joe Biden. And I know the conventional wisdom is, well, okay, look, he didn't do that badly. Let's be honest, he didn't do all that great either. I mean, if, if, if you watch that debate and you see Joe Biden punching, again, punching down at Cory Booker, the first rule that we always use with candidates in debate preparation, when I've, and I've been in dozens of these meetings, is you don't punch down. If you're the front runner, why do you punch down? And, and, and so in my mind for Joe Biden last night, it, it, it may have been a better performance than the first time he went out there, but gosh, if that's the best he can do, I think his campaign's in trouble. Well, boy, you and I are some of the few people saying that. I, I, I didn't think he was very impressive but he did avoid disaster you know you mentioned substance and and policy and i've advocated for more of that in my whole life and i finally got it the last couple of nights and i found myself just mystified and bored by the endless uh, recitation of the minor differences between various people's health care policies i like substance but how did it strike you yeah, I, I thought the healthcare discussion dived into the weeds quite quickly. I mean, look, the, the reality is that th- there are very stark differences between what someone like Joe Biden and what someone like Kamala Harris want to do with health care. And, and they could have made those things abundantly clear, while at the same time, by the way, pointing out the differences between what they want to do and what they allege Republicans want to do. But instead, they were talking about this percentage of people and that percentage of people on this element of the plan and that element of the plan. So I, I did think they get lost in the weeds really quickly. And, and there I do blame the moderators a little bit. I think the moderators could have jumped in and tried to pull them out of the weeds. But you're right. I think the conversation got way more specific than most Americans cared to hear about, even those who like policy. I know we talked about this before the first debate started. How much do these debates matter? There's not a lot of data to show that they move the needle much, that the polls move much, maybe for a day or two, but they kind of settle back. There are a couple of examples of people. uh, When Rick Perry couldn't name, you know, the main departments, I think that really damaged him. But there are very few examples. And then I saw an article today, laundry listing all of the times Hillary Clinton has won a debate. Like, practically every debate she's ever been in, she won. She's had, like, one gaffe in her entire career, yet she lost repeatedly (laughs) uh, running for president. So what do they matter? Well, I I think you raise a very good point, which is what generally happens with these debates is they create temporary changes and temporary shifts in how voters view various candidates. But they don't have lasting changes necessarily in the scope and the nature of the race. Now, what they can do is in this situation, they can create 
uh, a sort of a buzz around a candidate who maybe nobody was paying attention to. So Julian Castro got his five minutes of fame out of the first debate. In the second debate, you know, you could argue that um, there were others potentially like Cory Booker who may have benefited. But in the long run, I'm not really convinced the debates matter a whole ton in terms of the atmospherics of the race and where things are headed. Biden's still going to be the front runner. You're still going to have a pack of three or four that are in that next group that are nipping at his heels. And I don't think that changes very much. When it could change potentially is when we get down to two or three people in the debates. Then if someone has a very good performance or a very bad performance, it could affect things. But for now, at least, uh, I do think it's steady as she goes. Wanhee Chen is with the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. Uh, Listen, I'm going to make a number of uh, very wobbly assumptions and leap right to Biden versus Donald J. Trump on stage debating. Uh, Trump's going to go mean. Biden is going to try to be uh, the uh, aw shucks every man. How do you see that playing out? Any idea? Well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, Trump is very, very skilled in these debate contexts. And I and I just don't think that people realize that he is able to use um, elements of his rhetoric, elements of his now his record as president. I think he's going to use that very effectively. I think Biden, if anything, in the last couple of debates has shown that he's just a step slower than he was. You know, the last time I really remember him on the debate stage, obviously, was in 2012 when he was in that VP debate against Paul Ryan. I think that's the last time he, he debated before this. That's cycle. seven years ago. And, and, and he, and, yeah, it's seven years ago. And what you realize is if you go, I would encourage people, go back and watch some of that tape. The Joe Biden from seven years ago, very different than the Joe Biden that we've seen in the last two debates. And I do think he's gotten a step slower. And, and I wonder what it's going to look like when he's debating Trump. Because I think Trump is going to be relatively nimble, relatively agile, and, and Biden may be able to counterpunch, but is he going to be able to do it effectively? I'm just not sure. I'm convinced, based on what I've seen the last two nights or the last two debates, that he's going to be a great counterpuncher. And I think that you've got to be a great counterpuncher, and you've got to be able to think about ways to put Trump on the defensive if you're going to go up against it. I'm just not sure Biden can do that. If you were advising Kamala Harris, prepping her, what would you say about last night's debate performance or, or her performances in general? Yeah, I think I think she's been fine. Um, I think that that her problem is that at some point her rejoinder was always, well, those are Republican talking points. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're Republican talking points, but there's some truth to the matter. In other words, when Republicans say your plan is going to kick hundreds of millions of people off their health insurance, you know, you got to have an answer for that. Right. You got to go tell us why it is that your plan is not going to decimate private health insurance. It will, by the way. Uh, you got to be able to tell us why your criminal justice record as as DA doesn't square now with what you're saying you want to do as president. You've got to be able to answer these kinds of tough questions without sort of going to, well, they're just Republican talking points. And, and I think for now, it's an interesting line. People in the crowd like it, but it's going to get old. So she's going to have to really have a substantive set of responses to some of these challenges. And, and I think she's got to better articulate what her theory of the case is. Why is it that she thinks she can beat Donald Trump? Why is it that she thinks she's got a better vision for America? And that hasn't really come through in the last two debates. She, I saw her pretty low in a likability poll the other day. She needs to come up with a second tone. She has oh. one tone. And if she... Aggrieved, if she, angry, self-righteous. Sometimes I see stuff where she's like at a coffee shop or something talking to people and she's got kind of this giggly schoolgirl thing going that's very appealing. But on the stage, it's just always the same tone. 
Well, listen to Jack, yeah, the sexism. You want her in no, what, I a schoolgirl outfit or what? I just, I'm shocked by this. Sorry, Lonnie, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think, I think it is a little bit of a problem for her in that, in that she, she doesn't seem to have multiple gears, as it were. And, yeah. and to be effective in a campaign, you really need to have that nuance and be able to shift into different gears at different times. So we'll have to see if she develops that as the campaign goes on. Hey, Lonnie, he, uh, who among the like third-tier people, the one to two percenters, has impressed you lately? Okay, so I'll say this. I thought the first night Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, yeah. was, was actually quite effective. Yeah. Because so his case is, look, I'm the only Democrat up here who's won in a state that Trump won. That's pretty darn compelling. Sure. I mean, if I'm a Democrat who wants electability, why not go for a guy who's been a governor, who's got you know, some, some good plans that seem relatively reasonable, who has got some progressive streaks? Why not go for a guy like that? So I, Bullock has been good. And by the same token, um, uh, Bennett, the senator from Colorado last night, I thought did a great job of going up against the more liberal policies, particularly that media. I thought he was pretty effective. Right, but so he's got a voice like a Bennett. cartoon bear, Lonnie, so that's going to hurt him. Hey, <laughs> listen, know, we are... That's going to be a problem. Uh, we'd love to talk to you all day. We're out of time, but uh, Lonnie Chen of the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, uh, it's always great to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Our pleasure. Sean, do your, do your Governor Bennett voice. Oh, hi. I think we should just all get together and... <laughs> Have a nice picnic. He does sound like a cartoon bear. <laughs> Ding! Isn't this great, everybody? The real lesson is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> That's great. Now let's have a delicious picnic. Oh, yeah, he can't help it. It's, 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 it's just not, how I sound. You're not going to get this analysis on CNN. No, you're not. Armstrong and Getty.